0: Welcome to Autism Weekly, the podcast that discusses autism news, current events, and inclusion. Each week, we welcome a guest to the program to share their unique perspective and expertise as it relates to the fascinating world of autism. I'm your host, Jeff Skibitsky. I'm the founder and president at ABS Kids. I've been in the field of autism and applied behavior analysis as a clinician and advocate for nearly two decades. This week, we welcome back psychologist Dr. Natalie Roth to help us break down some autism myths and misconceptions. Dr. Natalie Roth is a licensed clinical psychologist specializing in childhood neurodevelopmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. She's the vice president of clinical psychology services at ABS Kids and oversees the diagnostic assessment process. Natalie has worked with hundreds of individuals on the spectrum and their families and is the perfect guest to help us break down what's a myth, and what's a fact. Dr. Roth, welcome to the podcast.
1: Uh, So good to be back, hi, Jeff.
0: Uh, You know what? I think that this is gonna be one of the the fun episodes because there are so many myths out there where I bet you there's a a smidgen of truth Mm -hmm. to some of them or at least some nuance to some of the stereotypes, but the myth itself probably doesn't have legs. Mm -hmm. And I'd love to hear your input and your insight into some of these.
1: Yeah, no, I I agree because I think both of us have that experience of clinicians where when you really get to know people, no stereotype, no myths, even if they have those grains of truth, ever captures the variety of real life experience. So it, it, I'm looking forward to the conversation as well.
0: So before we go down that route, uh, I'd love to be able to give a little bit of background to our guests and to our audience about about who's who's chatting with them today. So. Mm. Tell me a little bit about your diagnostic experience and what is it that really excites you? What makes your day different and what brings out that joy on on any given day doing your work?
1: Oh yeah, thanks. That's that's such a good question because you hardly ever get a chance to reflect on it. I um, in graduate school studied child development and was always interested in children, but honestly, had not done any work with um, neurodevelopmental disorders or children on the autism spectrum until my internship um, when I worked in a therapeutic preschool at St. John's Hospital in Santa Monica, California. Um, and if I can, if I can share a story, I. I loved the preschool. I had a great time, um, and I learned a lot about autism. But I recall specifically sitting around the table of um, these were three and four, three to five year olds, probably, and and they were actually a pretty mixed spectrum group, so low verbal to um, fluently verbal, and we had one of those circular tables that preschool teachers use. Um, and you know, I had been trained as a therapist too, so termination, the, the last appointment that you have with a patient is pretty important. It It um, is the end of your relationship, but it also kind of signifies for them how to negotiate that in other relationships. That's a therapeutic principle. But I was saying goodbye to these little kids, these three and four-year-olds, and trying to figure out a way that, that I could do termination <laughs> with uh, autistic little kids. Um, and thought this is kind of silly but oh well i'll try it and so what i had done is just started telling them and and trying to tailor it to their verbal skills this is what i remember about you or this is something that we did together um and i it was incredible the way that they locked in and came close and there was a an absolute termination experience and in the same sense that i would have experienced with a, a psychotherapy client i honestly think from that minute it felt like i these these are kind of my people like i want to learn how to be with them and communicate with them um and from there i ended up working in a school district for a short period of time and then um throughout my career since then i've done Primarily uh, diagnostic work with kids that are neurodevelopmentally disordered, um, including a, a you know a lot of children on the autism spectrum, working with their families, and I honestly think that part of the, I mean really it is I I know this sounds a little bit corny but just something I'm still so passionate about is making that connection with these kids as an individual, and then there's something also so Rewarding about paying, being, even for a short period of time, part of that treatment team with the family and being able to witness their child as an individual while they're going through a process of also being assigned this label that feels art, a little artificial and incomplete.
0: Uh, you know what? That idea that you just had of, of making that connection and understanding, I think that's going to lead us to a lot of the uh, discussion on myths as we go through yeah, it. Because yeah. in order to truly understand somebody, is that you must be aware of who they are. You must be aware of everything that kind of ties into that individual. And it's not just the stereotype, it's the individual. So maybe we'll get to that. Before we do though, when you started your grad school, I would imagine rates of autism were one in 200, one in 250, something not close to the one in 44, one in 49, depending on the research you're seeing now. Right. So a lot of people probably are thinking autism is relatively new.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's not something that really affected a lot of people mm-hmm. up until recently because there's a change in the numbers. So how do we go about explaining? Is is it new? And my answer, obviously, would be no, but I'd love to hear how you break that myth.
1: Yeah, it's not new. I mean, it's not it's not new even in the sort of um the sense that we had Kanner saying what it was and and giving this sort of prototype. Um he was the first person to describe what we now call autism spectrum disorders. Um but even before that, I I think that what's important about autism is to understand that there it really is a a different development in two areas and the first area is what we call social communication so it's your ability to communicate socially back and forth and then there's another part of the pattern where that same person has a difficult time getting unstuck from repetitive behaviors routines or interests Um, and those two things i think you can see throughout history you can see throughout and it just makes it's common sense that those were the those were apparent before we were able to identify them with our diagnostic labels um but it's also oh sorry
0: what i was gonna say is that i mean what you just said is so important is that all of these things were there everything is there for the social communication everything is there as far as being able to label those diagnostically Society has changed, has it not? So yeah,
1: right, right. And that's and that's the case with all behavioral disorders, right? What I mean, we could probably sit here and talk a long time about what's normal and what's not normal, putting that in quotes. But but in terms of how we understand autism and getting back up to more modern times or the time since I've been in grad school, um, I I absolutely think that part of the experience of this is being a, a exploding burgeoning problem just has to do with the fact that we're able to identify oh these people fit into this particular category it's just that they don't uh, their display of those symptoms don't look the same Um, so another story when I graduated from college I took a year off and I worked in a private school here in Salt Lake City um, that was basically for kids that, that were described as having learning disorders. Looking back, all of them had spectrum disorders, but they just weren't identified, not successful in a regular school classroom, needed individual education. And again, across the spectrum from nonverbal to highly um, intelligent verbal, but um, really difficult emotional behavioral problems, I'm sure all of those children would have been diagnosed with currently with an autism spectrum disorder. We just didn't know what to call it.
0: That that makes a lot of sense. And it it makes it so that the identification must have changed as far as how you're seeing some of the symptoms displayed over time. Because at one point, 20, 25 years ago, technology was different. The emerging technologies of 25 years ago are not the same ones they are now. And if you're talking about social communication delays, Mm -hmm. part of that has got to be tied societally to other things like the way that we find social media, the way that we interact or debate things that are different now, the way that we could go and find an echo chamber online and the internet and just research that one subject again and again and find ourselves there. So how do you find the nuance of what might just be a societal change? Uh Uh These are truly potentially autistic characteristics, of uh, perseveration on a topic, mm-hmm. or uh, needing to have consistency in responding, or not being able to break a, a thought pattern, or some of those other components that are more repetitive, ritualistic. Mm-hmm. In-
1: yeah, I, I think part of what you're touching on is the question I just get often from parents who come in, which is, is this just typical behavior and i don't know what i'm looking at you know toddlers for example tend to like the same things and eat the same things that's normative behavior or i think now you're saying it's normative for my 13 year old son to be persistently scrolling through his texts right or or you know checking likes or something like that and i think that the um you know, the challenge or the conversation that we have with parents in those situations has to do with understanding a qualitative difference um, and being able to identify whether or not somebody is capable of the skill and choosing not to exert it or demonstrate it um, in various contexts or because, um, you know, they're being reinforced for different types of behavior versus not being able to demonstrate the skill even when they're highly motivated and the context is pulling for it. Also the like the extent to the problem and whether or not they can shift away from it and back and forth um, comes into play as we're trying to determine, hey is this something that's just a characteristic of like you were saying a new society or this particular friend group or something like that versus a neurodevelopmental problem, which means that something is different in terms of brain development that can't be controlled without a different type of learning or can't be remediated.
0: And, and, you know, at the way that you were able to kind of put that into context makes a lot of sense is that one of them might just be kind of the normalization of society to changing the way that they're behaving. Mm-hmm. The other one being something where there's a learned behavior that just has not developed or developmentally is mm-hmm. that you just haven't gotten to the ability to be able to access Particular ways of communicating, socializing, integrating, and those are skills that that need to still be built. Um, right. So I, right. I like the way that 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 you framed that. Um, but to go on to that, I guess I guess that brings me to another myth then, um, mm-hmm. and maybe you can help me with this one uh, <laughs> because I I feel like I, it's something that always is being discussed and and maybe isn't fully understood. It's that oftentimes autistic people are being deemed as lacking emotion Mm -hmm. or not feeling love because they don't necessarily show the reciprocation of those feelings or demonstrate emotions in the same way that somebody else might. And, And it might be something where perspective might be a little bit different or the ability to really embrace that social interaction is slightly different. But how do you respond when somebody says, "Well, my child doesn't have emotions or doesn't feel the love that I feel
1: yeah uh, i I really like the opportunity to knock down this myth because um i I'm just a firm believer that we all have emotions and we all have a need social connection, whether we have an autism spectrum disorder diagnosis or not i getting back to sort of my what I was saying about the two characteristics of autism, the deficit is not in emotions or feelings or even social motivation, it's in communication. And I think um, just in terms of like building empathy with people who have deficits in social communication, it's really difficult if you don't know how to make the right facial expression or if you don't know that your posture or your unusual behavior is is causing, is communicating something to somebody else that's non intentional, or in a lot of cases, it's even difficult for them to take another person's perspective. So you don't even realize what it is that you're communicating because you can't read that other person's response. It's pretty, um, it's gotta be pretty frustrating or anxiety provoking to want to, to, to get your needs met, make a connection, demonstrate your feelings, but really not know the way to communicate that in the way that gets those feelings reciprocated, met, understood, reflected, so that then you start to understand what they are, what they mean, and how to regulate around them. So really, a lot of what I think the improvement in terms of autism treatment has been is focusing on how do we really people give give people the skills to communicate so they can start having that type of response that lets them know what that emotion is, sometimes what it's called, how to cope with it, what to do in order to move forward with it. Though, that's the problem. But to, and to assume that they just don't feel leaves them trapped.
0: Yeah. And I would imagine extremely frustrated is that you've worked with adults as well as children. And if I were an autistic adult and somebody was telling me that you don't know how to love or you don't know how to emote because you do it differently, that's got to be one of the most frustrating things in the world because you're getting pushed away for no apparent reason other than somebody not understanding you. And is that do you get that feedback?
1: Absolutely. You know, it reminds me of a, a, this is two parents that I worked with and um, eventually the mom and I started joking about her facial expressions. She became aware of her own autism spectrum uh, diagnosis. And one of the really difficult aspects in her marriage had been that she has a flat to grouchy facial expression just naturally and wasn't aware of how to change that in response to what her partner was saying to her. And so he's getting continual feedback that she's dissatisfied, that she's angry, that she's upset. And then that escalates, right? Because everybody's interpreting everybody's reactions differently. So even just getting to the point where she <laughs> she would joke around it about it and make because it was hard it was hard for her to be consciously aware of making a relaxed, smiling facial expression. So, so we used to joke about how, how much her facial muscles hurt, but it made a huge difference to him to interpret that, that it was about knowing what to do and making that effort and not really truly what she meant to communicate emotionally.
0: Mm -hmm. And that actually brings to another kind of area that I'd love to be able to discuss is that these unconscious biases that that we potentially have where we are trying to interpret somebody's uh, facial response or interpret their meaning behind their behavior without really understanding the person leads to one of the things that is really frustrating to a lot of parents, especially of older children who are autistic and maybe don't communicate well, is the myth that autistic in- individuals are inherently more dangerous or more violent mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. and
0: i couldn't imagine walking into a room and knowing that people are unconsciously demonstrating that bias by stepping away from my child or mm-hmm. feeling nervous around them for no apparent reason other than not realizing how to engage them mm-hmm. it, it, is this is this myth does it have legs
1: no, yeah, you know, this is one that there really isn't even a speck of truth in it. Um, I, Autistic people or people with autism spectrum disorders are less violent intentionally or in a planful way than, than people who don't have autism spectrum disorder um, characteristics. When, in general, when people with ASD react aggressively. It's a reactivity to anxiety or sometimes sensory stimuli or just not understanding or not knowing what how to react in a certain situation. Um, and I do think that one of the continual efforts that those of us who work with this population need to keep making, something that your podcast does, is um, continues to say to people, let's make these um, Community members familiar to you so that you don't um, inadvertently communicate your own bias or your own fear, I think, is behind that bias of difference.
0: So, I mean, in that situation, though, Dr. Roth, I mean, do you, how do you get past that bias? And I know this is kind of going a little bit past the myth, but how do you get past the bias? How do you see the real person? How do you see that person that? in in the previous myth demonstrates love in the the last myth that we just talked about is somebody that's probably more passive than they are active in demonstrating their, their aggression. And how do you, how do you get past that? Like, what do you suggest to community members on how to be able to get past and see past the myth?
1: Wow. You know, I like that question and it reminds me that I don't talk to to community members as much as I, I don't talk to neurotypical community members as much as I talk to autism spectrum community members and their families. But I think if I was going to say something, I'd I'd say that we need to practice expanding the way that we communicate. So if the way that we want to be communicated with or, or reassured about somebody has to do with shifts in their facial expressions or their posture, we need to learn how to Read other cues that people are giving um, and not as, not make assumptions based on the fact that um, we see someone not making eye contact or we see someone moving away when we move closer um, or that someone seems really distracted in a loud place that we don't make the assumption that that has that that's an interpersonal communication as much as just a communication about their own um comfort level. And I and think I there, that. yeah, there, there are a lot of ways to do that, but mainly it's just giving it time. And I, I really, if I could, if I could, if I could get across like one uh, skill, and this is true for all parents too, it's that it's the serve and response. So say something, let someone respond and then respond to that and go back and forth and try to just stick with that rather than, trying to read into it or make assumptions. And that's going to give that person a chance to trust you and, and feel that you're a safe person to continue to show themselves to.
0: And if we, Does that if make we sense? All, Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And if we all work on that ability to get past the fear of the unknown, mm-hmm. being able to respect and see differences as a positive thing, then this next myth would have never even been a myth in the first place because you would have gotten to meet the the autistic individual because I've heard too many times that autistics don't have a sense of humor or Mm. don't have the ability to engage in art. I don't know how this myth could even have been put out there, but Mm. the fact of the matter is is that this is said. And I've seen it on the podcast firsthand is that there are wonderful artists out there I've what? gotten to meet so many autistics, and I will tell you, a sense of humor is definitely a characteristic. Tell me why this myth exists and why it's so wrong.
1: <laughs> the myth of like not being able to be creative and not being able to be humorous and funny Absolutely. and those types of things. <laughs> yeah. So I think this is one of those myths that has a little bit of truth, but that has been exaggerated. The little bit of truth is that it can be difficult for some ASD people to generate new ideas, to come up with something to put on a blank slate. That's not everybody. It's just some people. Um, It can be difficult for some people with ASD to um, understand non-literal language. And so there's a certain type of joke or a certain type of idiom or sarcasm that... um, that is difficult maybe for some of them to catch on to. But even with those deficits, the same way that someone with a deficit in reading, for example, dyslexia, you can find a way to be both humorous and creative because I think those are human characteristics too, across the board, human characteristics, um, that are just different than the normal pathway or the typical pathway that other creatives or humorous people take. So, Natalie, I was
0: talking to somebody just the other day, and um, this happened to be a teenager with, uh, with autism, identified as autistic, and he was talking and joking around. He goes, he, mm-hmm. and this is his language, but he was like, yeah, somebody told me the other day I need a new brain. You know what I told them? I said, all right, so I'm going to go buy one. And he said, <laughs> I have three choices, Jeff. I could go get a doctor's brain. That's worth about $50,000. I could go buy your brain. It's $1,000. You're not worthy of that $50,000 yet. <laughs> or I could go get a bull rider's brain. And that's $500,000. And I was like, why in the world would you go get the... Why do you price the bull rider's brain above mine? He goes, because they don't use their brains, Jeff. This one's <laughs> unused. I just thought it was the funniest thing. But that's what you're talking. It's like a literal thing. He's like, that's not like... I'm going to go after the, the brain that not that bull riders don't use their brains, don't get me wrong, but the one that I'm going to characterize as being used the least is that that one's the most expensive. And it's like, that's so funny.
1: That is, uh, that is, uh, that was a very, very good joke. Or I think of, I think uh, Jerry Seinfeld has self-identified as um, someone sort of higher functioning on the autism spectrum. And if you analyze his characteristic of humor, right, it's observational and kind of like why do people do the strange things that they do and to be honest like i wonder if he could have developed that sense of humor without um his autism spectrum brain he got to step outside and look at things from a different perspective and made this classic beloved take on society right Mm -hmm. so there's a good
0: argument that I mean art and comedy and good writing mm-hmm. is is really that great because it's coming from different angles, different perspectives yeah. and that's the kind of that same gist here is that you have somebody who maybe thinks differently tells you a story that story could be more engaging, it could be funnier simply because it's coming from a perspective that you might not have come up with yourself and that's where, for mm-hmm. me, this idea of the lack of creativity, mm-hmm. it's just mind-blowing that anybody would ever say that. It's, mm-hmm. to me, different creativity than what I have.
1: <laughs> yes, yeah, I, and I think I think that another thing that's kind of incumbent on the entire community um, is to create avenues for people with autism spectrum disorders to demonstrate creativity. Um, I think theater has been shown to be an a, a very like good, uh, let me say this again, people with autism spectrum can be, uh, disorders can be very, very adept at theater um, because they can take on roles and they under, they understand how to pick out mannerisms, potentially. Uh, they listen to the inflections and voices and know how to change those so that they reflect some different character. Um, A a lot of another myth I think I I encounter this frequently in diagnostics is that they don't have imaginative play. So uh, the way that kids are creative is imaginative play, Um, and again, going back to it, that's not the case. What what's difficult for them is social communication, is how to bring others into their imaginative play or describe their ma- imaginative world to other people or give up control of that because, because those are the things that are more difficult for them.
0: And I, I've seen that firsthand as well. And it it is so interesting when you can bring out that communication from them and see the world. It is a wonderful world to be invited into and to be a part of. I have two other myths that I kind of want to get to because these are, these are hot topics in the field right now. One of them is, and we spoke about this not too long ago, but about the prevalence rate of autism has changed. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Some might
0: say that it's becoming an epidemic, which I think we have to define what an epidemic is. But tell me, is that myth on par with the way that you're seeing the diagnostic world
1: so so no i, I think that when you th- you know the term epidemic carries this connotation right that's something um that is exponentially taking over um and and as we had kind of mentioned a little bit before i think what is happening for the most part within the growing rates of autism is that we are increasing our awareness of people who have those two deficits or have those two challenges, social communication and that tendency toward repetitive, restricted behaviors. And because we're widening our scope of what that looks like that means the diagnostic rates have also increased. But as we've done that, we've also recognized people with autism spectrum disorders are much less likely to have intellectual problems, for example, than we thought even 10 years ago. Much less likely to have, to, um, you know, be unable to develop independent functioning, to have friendships, to get married, Mm -hmm. to have jobs, um, all those kinds of things. Um, So I think, I think that the perception of epidemic is it just carries this kind of negative connotation that if we can understand that these are people who are identified but have been part of our community and world forever, it becomes less other and scary and worrisome.
0: Yeah, word choice there I think is so important is that epidemic does have a negative connotation to it. And I would hope that and this is maybe my perspective and you can tell me what you're seeing but 15 years ago a diagnosis of autism carried a lot of weight on family's shoulders it carried stigma to it Mm -hmm. that Mm -hmm. i don't think is as powerful right now i think people are starting to realize autistics are not inherently less able to navigate the world they navigate it differently. There's some mm-hmm. skill sets that need to still be developed, but they probably have some strengths that maybe I don't have or you don't have. And we're all different in the way that we're perceiving things. So when we say epidemic, I want to get away from the negative connotation. So yeah, you know, diagnostic rates have gone up, but awareness of how to empower people who mm-hmm. are getting,
1: right. I think has also increased. Oh, yes i you said that better than than I did, and i but I think we were getting getting to the same point, which is there's also this new understanding right that that comes with the increased awareness um it reminds me when i when I first was started to diagnose when that was my job my full time job and and like all clinicians or doctors or anybody who works with with people and sometimes in painful situations you you find your own way of sort of understanding that experience and what it means to you as a person and in your relationships with the, the people that you're lucky enough to interface with and the word that for the first part of my career I just hang, hung on to all the time was hope because I I felt like that's what we all need to that's that was that was my job to communicate and I think that was a little bit more difficult 20 years ago. One, because we just didn't have treatment options, but we also just didn't understand what type of treatment works for this child, this child, and this child. And increasingly, I am really enthusiastic about offering hope. I, I, the one caveat I want, I want to respect the fact that this can be a very difficult experience for parents. It can be difficult because it's more, it is a more challenging parenting job in almost every case. Because, but it, but, and it, it also is difficult because it is unexpected in most cases, but I think that's where that concept of hope and being able to say what's hopeful is that you do have an opportunity to have this new life with someone that we get to know together now and they're going to show you a lot of different things about the world that you wouldn't have known otherwise.
0: I've heard that as well from families is that they feel like they've become better parents or stronger individuals. If, if they get past that initial hurdle of knowing that I need to understand, I need to educate myself. I need to know how my child's operating Mm -hmm. so that I can better support them on some of these things that maybe haven't developed yet, that I need to get the support myself to help them get there. Um, Mm, which actually brings me to the last question. It's, Something that I somebody in an interview just asked me the other day, and they were asking again, well, where's research going? Where's the next, where's the cure? It was the term mm. that they used. Mm-hmm. So I'd love to get to this last question, is that there's a myth that autism can be cured or will be cured over time. Mm. <laughs> what is your thought on that?
1: I'm a skeptic. and And that's not to say that there couldn't be advances in some of the, the, you know, the really disabling aspects of of autism, not being able to speak, for example, um, or some of the other difficulties that come along with it. I think of some of our medically complicated kids where Im- improvements in those areas, uh, especially when they're genetically related and are coexisting with autism spectrum disorders. I think, and I'm ho- really hopeful for extraordinary gains in terms of being able to identify earlier and earlier which children have autism so that we can help that developmental trajectory um, optimize their abilities. But in terms of, you know, in terms of curing autism, this is, to me, it's not a condition that is, needs to be cured. This is, those two elements, again, I'm, I'm a broken record, but social communication and those behaviors, those are pretty pervasive, And they become, you know, part of, to some degree, who someone is. So I think the the job of working with people in those situations is to help them, like with everyone, right? Like with our own kids, Jeff, help them become the people that they can be in terms of independence and learning and etc., And then also helping them have some agency in in determining themselves and and having open pathways to doing something meaningful in their life. Um,
0: I applaud the the fact that you had had initially started with the fact that there's really not something to cure. Like, (laughs) what am I curing? I'm not curing somebody's personality. I'm not curing the way that somebody perceives the world. And it's almost like, well, what maybe we need to do is get more efficient, get better at empowering on some of those deficits so that we can bring out, like you said, the best in everybody. And And I think that's what you're hitting at.
1: Yeah. I think if you, I mean, I'm going to extrapolate from just hundreds of parents I've talked to. There's, I think that underneath, like what might be on the surface said, I hope for a cure. I hope my child is cured. Really it's, I hope they're able to make friends. I hope they're happy. I hope that they can do things for themselves so they don't feel like they're dependent as an as an adolescent or as an adult. I hope they contribute to the world. And those are all things that you can do without a cure for autism. Those are things that need, um, you know, they need societies and communi- communities to make room for that. They need skill development. They need individualized understanding from treatment teams and educational providers and they need the medical support they need. But to me I think I think if you really got to the bottom of it the idea of a cure has to do with I want a, a well functioning person, child, spouse, brother, sister, right? It's not I I want this person, I want autism to leave them completely.
0: Yeah, it's it's almost as I want them to have a better way to communicate where their needs are being met, or I want them to be able to feel comfortable when they're getting frustrated so that they don't they don't get overly exerted in situations so that they don't know how to control whatever it is that their that their body's feeling at that time. I want them to be able to express to everybody around them. How to be able to interact with them appropriately. So they're telling the community, you know, this is how I need you to interact with me so they can be self-advocates. But there's skill sets that need to be developed to do that. And then you get the the holistic picture yes. of I'm a person. Right. <laughs> Don't and scare I, and, me, empower. And me. I mean,
1: yeah. And it, I I and I think that's true. The skill set that they're given is communication. Um, then they can also communicate some of the things that I don't want to underplay about how life is challenging and difficult. You know, I think of the sensory issues that a lot of people with spectrum disorders face. And and I think even for verbally fluent adults, the inability to communicate the intensity of that. Um, it It is a different life experience. And I I think that we respect people in those situations also by saying, this is, difficult and sometimes really painful and not I don't I don't want to make it sound as if it's not a challenge but to your point it's not a challenge of changing your personality or who you are it's a challenge of making the world and who you are work together and Mm -hmm. and communicating with people is the way to do that right yeah. Those social relationships that you build, or friendships, or love, or care—I have to say, like, um, I work in our in one of our centers, Jeff, and uh, last night I was getting ready to go home, and I heard a group of kids down the hall who were just laughing hysterically, and I went and walked by, and there's this group of four, probably young school age um kiddos, who were playing a board game, and I different again different verbal levels they all needed different levels of support in order to access the rules of the game and play but their glee and enjoyment felt exactly like any other young school-age kids together they were having fun with their friends it was really fun it was really neat to hear
0: no, and, and that's that's what you want, is that you want to build those. So you want to see children engaging one another. You want to see everybody being able to access every part of life. And that, that I think that's I, what I was hitting at, and I, I think that you articulated well. It will, will be hard work yeah. in order to build those skills yes. at times. And there is, at times, as as anybody's going to say, is I wish that there was a quick fix. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's efficient treatment to build those skills instead of mm-hmm. a cure to something that really isn't I mean it's a neuro neurodevelopmental disorder right. so I mean right. it's what are you what are you curing there other right. than the fact that somebody developed differently right. and right. how do you empower rather than do that but that yeah. that brings I guess I'd love to hear just this last little thought for you um you have a, a wide audience to talk to right now <laughs> you've lived the the gamut of diagnosing early to treating adults with, uh, with autistic disorder on maybe marriage and family. What do you want the neurotypical public mm. to know that maybe has never really engaged with somebody with mm. autism?
1: Oh, I love that question. That's the challenge. I want them, I want the neurotypical community to understand that they have the capacity to learn how to communicate with people who have autism spectrum disorders, whether they're, whether it's verbally, non-verbally, through play, through activities, through learning and understanding, that those, um, that they have the ability to do that. And that they actually, I I don't know, I don't wanna sound um, preachy, But I think we also, when we're talking about 1 in forty-eight, one in 46 kids, we also have a responsibility to figure it out. You know, we have a responsibility to understand what this life experience is like and, and learn different skills ourselves, which may mean not paying attention to the things that we're used to paying attention to to get our social cues or taking more time or talking to people who love and care for those people. Um, no, I
0: appreciate that, Natalie. And I think that one thing that maybe maybe would be nice to do is, is to give you more of that platform out there with the community to kind of yeah, get them yeah. and understanding. No, so um, I appreciate you taking your time today to come on and talk about these myths and to debunk some of them and to generate some thought. I think that that's what we need to do is, is take a step back and just realize that I can't go in with my bias on these things I need to step back, listen to those around me, and and I guess put it into perspective and understand that I'm an individual as much as somebody with autistic disorder is an individual, and yeah. I need to understand them the same way they need to understand me.
1: You know, it's a, another, another moment for those of us in the neurotypical population, for lack of a better word. Um, You know we we need to make those empathy exercises where you say something to yourself like what would it feel like to always be referred to as being part of this group that was characterized by a disorder what would that be like whereas that's one of the assigned identity characteristics that you have that would be pretty frustrating you know Um, what if you also couldn't communicate well (laughs) around that frustration um and and i think that that type of exercise helps us be better, just better everything. Better neighbors, better brothers, sisters, spouses, whatever. Um, teachers, therapists, to the to the people who are in that category.
0: Well stated, and and thanks again, Dr. Roth. I appreciate your time, and uh, hopefully, we can get you back on the podcast soon.
1: Oh, it's a it's such a pleasure. Thank you for the questions and just the chance to talk about these ah that's amazing population. Thanks, Jeff. <laughs>
0: Thank you for listening to Autism Weekly. We hope you tune back in next week to learn more about autism in the real world. Autism Weekly is now found on all the major listening apps, including Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, Amazon Music, and more. Subscribe to be notified when we post a new podcast. Autism Weekly is produced by ABS Kids. ABS Kids is proud to provide diagnostic assessments and ABA therapy to children with developmental delays like autism spectrum disorder. You can learn more about ABS Kids and the Autism Weekly Podcast by visiting abskids.com. Thanks for tuning in. See you again next week.